0: The following podcast contains coarse language, descriptions of violence, and sensitive themes which may not be suitable for younger audiences. Listener discretion
1: is advised.
2: Previously on Unascertained.
3: Ambulance, what is your emergency? We have an inmate with vital signs
1: absent. Ontario guards killed my brother. And the real question is, were they doing
4: what they were trained to do and following the training correctly? I'm just thrown off by the... um, like leaving somebody face down and handcuffed to the rear. Like, you
2: cannot leave somebody like that.
1: You do not ever put a spit hood on someone who's been sprayed. You had so many untrained staff, and a simple permission to initiate ISA would have quashed the entire thing.
2: Some of these facts that have come forward about the Suleiman Fakiri case that haven't seemed to be taken into account in the post-mortem report. Those are exactly the questions that need to be canvassed.
4: On Tuesday, Ontario's chief pathologist released a damning report, concluding Fikiri's death was indeed caused by multiple correctional guards beating, pepper spraying, and restraining him.
5: It's about time. It's about time that the coroner's office did the right thing.
1: Investigations by OPP and the Lake's police didn't result in criminal charges. But there's hope the coroner's inquest will offer answers.
3: The verdict is in on the coroner inquest into the death of 30-year-old Solomon Fakiri. I'm
1: nervous too. You're nervous.
3: The
2: weight is like killer, like the longer they go more stressful is. We've been is. waiting
1: seven years for this, sir. So yeah. this is a case that, um... John Solomon. How are you? I'm sending you my comment in case it's a homicide, a verdict or if it's an accident. So then you could send it up. It's
2: December 12th, 2023. I'm in Yusuf Fakiri's apartment in HX, Ontario, sitting by a laptop on a dining table in his kitchen. Yusuf is anxiously pacing around the room, answering phone calls and texts,
1: there's somebody looking in. Hi, where are you? Hey, I'm sure I'm in the right place. You are. I'm the CTV. Okay, come right here. Come. I just have to grab my stuff. Yeah, no problem. Throughout
2: the morning, Yusuf's apartment is a revolving door of media and journalists, all wanting to capture this moment. It's been three weeks since the coroner's inquest began, and now we're waiting for the verdict. Yusuf has two prepared statements for the press. One, for if the jury decides that the actions of the staff was homicide. The other, for if the jury decides it was an accident.
1: Uh, added, uh, stuff. Uh, John has a lot of this stuff. Oh, here we gone. go. Sorry. Good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us here
5: today.
2: as we... The room falls silent, and Yusuf cups his hands in prayer. The coroner presiding over the inquest lists the details of the verdict. Date of death, December 15th. Place of death, Central East Correctional Center. Cause of death, prone positional restraint and musculocutaneous injuries sustained during struggle, exertion, and pepper foam exposure in the setting of cardiomegaly and worsening symptoms of schizophrenia. And finally, he says the manner of death. The word Yusuf Akiri has been waiting to hear for seven years homicide. Homicide. Oh. The gasp that you heard there was me, I couldn't contain it, and neither could Yusuf, immediately jumping out of his chair and bursting into tears. He drops to the floor and begins to prostrate to God. After seven years of fighting and advocating for his brother, Yusuf Akiri finally gets the answer he's been waiting for.
5: The government of Ontario, specifically the Ministry of the Sister the
1: Ministry of Health, and the Ministry of human-
2: I'm gonna call my mom. And I Good. Is mom with you? Can I
1: talk to her? In Farsi, Yusuf tells his mom they killed him. mother Okay? My mommy, I'll let you go, okay? Homicide. Oh, It's been ruled a homicide. Okay. Alhamdulillah, Okay?
2: We talk later more for I'm Yusuf Zine, and this is unascertained. This series did a detailed breakdown of Suleiman Fakiri's case. We uncovered a potential cause of death. We spoke with eyewitnesses, forensic experts, and even the chief pathologist of Ontario. The show prompted officials to reevaluate how Suleiman died in custody. After three criminal investigations, no charges were ever laid. But three weeks ago, the coroner's inquest began, and the dramatic verdict this week concluded it was homicide. This verdict came out almost seven years after Suleiman died. I want to help you understand how the jury came to a verdict of homicide, and to do that, I'm joined by my co-producer, Kevin Young.
5: Thank you. Well, yeah, it's been definitely a long three weeks and um, yeah. yeah, a lot of information to go through and we'll try to do it as uh, concisely as possible for you, the listeners. Yeah.
2: Um, Kevin and I have been working on this story together for four years now, so I think it's fitting that we go through the inquest findings together. Yeah. But before we jump into it, let's first break down what a coroner's inquest is.
5: A coroner's inquest is basically a public hearing conducted by a coroner. It's before a jury of five community members, just kind of like a criminal trial. However, the difference is that this is not a criminal trial. Right. Purpose is to inform the public about the circumstances of death, and when a death occurs in custody, a coroner's inquest is mandatory. The jury's goal is to actually answer five questions regarding the death: who died, when they died, where they died, how they died, And by what means or manner did they die versus the cause? So the manner can be one of five things. Natural, accident, homicide, suicide, and undetermined. Now, the end result is a list of recommendations designed to prevent further deaths from occurring.
2: And I know it can be confusing for people when they hear homicide. You presume criminal charges are going to follow that. But that's really not the goal of the coroner's inquest. Uh, The goal, like Kevin said, is to answer those five questions and come up with
5: recommendations. And we'll come back to the jury's recommendations at the end. Right.
2: Now, while the jury set out to answer those five questions, we had three questions of our own throughout this entire series Why was Suleiman never sent to a hospital? Why was the Institutional Crisis Intervention Team, or ICITS, not called to intervene? and what happened in that cell on December 15th, 2016. And thanks to the inquest, we now have these answers. So let's get started. Let's start with December 5th, when he's first admitted into the Central East Correctional Center.
5: Yeah, we received video from the inquest that shows Sully being admitted to the jail. You see him go through a body scanner with guards around and he's actually calm and compliant the entire time.
2: Yeah, no red flags are raised about his mental health. No. But the next day, Sully is placed in Segregation Unit 2, or 2SEG, and his mental health deteriorates almost immediately. You might remember when we interviewed an inmate from 2SEG who witnessed this firsthand, but an observation record from the unit shows just how dire his state actually was.
5: Right, and an observation record, for those who don't know, is basically a log where COs can record what the inmate is doing or what they observe. Now, we have records from the 6th to 11th for Sully, and it said things like hiding in corner, ranting, refusing to eat, yelling, talking to self. One even said no idea what he's doing.
2: Yeah, now there were some correctional staff who did try to raise flags about Suleiman's condition— one of them was John Thompson, an operational manager in Tusseg.
5: From the inquest we learned that Thompson sent an email flagging that Sully had been in crisis for the last 4 days. The email was sent to 60 staff including Deputy Superintendent of the Jail, Deputy Super of Healthcare, and Deputy Super of Operations, whose response was 4 days, first I've heard of it.
2: Yeah, and some testified saying they don't remember the email or may have never read it since they get a lot of emails. In the end, though, nothing was done to improve Suleiman's conditions.
0: I I was reporting what I was dealing with, but I was looking to get him a higher idea of of getting him out of the cell without without causing any problems, because obviously he had mental issues.
5: That's John Thompson in an interview with an investigator from the CSOI. Or correctional services oversight and investigations.
0: And he, like, like I said, he was covered in his feces, and the cell was, was disgusting. And um, I just needed to get him relocated to a different area. He was rushing the door. He was, uh, he was, he was aggressive. Right. So, right. so he and he was he was un, um, unresponsive. Mm-hmm. He appeared to be aggressive and violent tendencies towards staff. He had been throwing stuff at staff. He had been uh, to the, to the hatch. Mm-hmm and the fact that he was covered in his own feces and stuff, it was going to be hard to get anybody to willingly go in there and wrestle
2: with him. Which then begs the question again, why was Suleiman never sent to the hospital, given what so many staff were witnessing? To understand that, we need to turn to Dr. Brent McMillan.
5: He's the facility's physician, and the person who has the power to send Sully to a hospital for treatment. Dr. McMillan doesn't learn about his condition until December 7th. He writes Sully prescription for Zyprexa, an antipsychotic medication, and wants him to see a psychiatrist.
2: McMillan's notes from his visits to the cell reference, quote, bizarre behavior. It reports on the state of a cell, feces and urine stains on the walls and floors, and garbage strewn all over the place. Days after the visit, he finds out that his request for the psychiatrist to see Sully never happened. The psychiatrist was on vacation.
5: Now, when an inmate is identified with an acute mental health crisis, there's a process called a Form 1 where the inmate gets sent to a hospital. But McMillan testified that he felt it wouldn't have been in Solomon's best interest to send him to the hospital.
2: Yeah, he testified saying inmates are often turned away at the hospital due to overcrowding and lack of beds. He said that if there was a guarantee that he could get Suleiman admitted, he would have done it. But he didn't see it to be worth the risk. He said there was risk associated with, quote, corralling a man who's frightened. He was quite concerned sending him to the hospital would instigate a reaction in Suleiman, who was in that mental state at the time that would cause him harm, mental or physical.
5: Yeah, and what's interesting is actually that McMillan acknowledged in his testimony, with hindsight, that he didn't even believe Sully should be in the jail. He knew his conditions would get worse and even said, quote, of course he's going to deteriorate
2: yeah I understand McMillan's concerns. you know maybe transporting Suleiman would have been too stressful for him. you know maybe our hospital systems are so overwhelmed that they wouldn't have been able to accommodate Sully. but why not even try to send him to the hospital?
5: Yeah, this is the start of Suleiman falling through the cracks.
2: yeah Now there was someone who went above and beyond to help Sully, Sergeant Clark Moss.
5: So Moss has worked at the jail for almost 30 years, and he has a lot of experience dealing with inmates suffering from acute mental crisis. However, he only interacted with Sully for one day, which was on December 11th. Yep, here
4: we go. Solomon, how are you?
5: He testified in the inquest that when he found out that Sully had been like that for days, he got angry, and remember saying things like, why the hell is this going on? What do you mean this has gone on for days? How is this still happening?
2: So Moss did the only thing he felt was necessary. He gets a camera from a senior officer, goes to Sully's cell in Tusseg, and asks another officer to begin filming. It's surreal to watch this video. It's the first time we're seeing the inside of Suleiman's cell, and the first time we're seeing him interact with staff. And he's sort of gesturing at Sergeant Moss, repeating the word, trust.
4: Trust? Who are you looking to trust? trust, trust. For me? Trust,
3: trust,
2: trust. Sergeant Moss continues to speak calmly and firmly, keeping direct eye contact with Sully. Trust, trust. trust,
4: trust. trust who? Trust, yes. 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 Yes, who, Solomon? Yes. Yes. You, trust trust. you don't trust them? Yes. You do. not Fucking
3: yes. Trust them.
5: Moss instructs the cameraman to get a closer shot of Solomon's cell through the window.
3: Come
4: video the cell,
1: please.
4: Can you see the picture the condition the cell? The stench of uh, feces, urine, and vomit by the appearance of it.
2: It's a disturbing sight. The video, released as an exhibit at the inquest, reveals what I've pictured in my head for so many years, but have never seen. The floor is soaked and has garbage all over the place. The walls and floors are stained with feces and urine, and Solomon is naked, talking to himself. And just a word of warning, some of this is hard to listen to.
4: Acting irrationally, he's not responding. I'm gonna try to get him out and get him cleaned up. Solomon, come here and speak to me, please. Who is it you don't trust, lad? Like?
3: Are we going to be able to get you cleaned up? Are we going to be able to get you out and get you in for a shower? Do You trust me? Yes, no, yes, I trust it. I trust
4: it at some point. At point, I trust it. Solomon, come talk to me again.
3: What are you rubbing in your eye?
5: This goes on for a while, but eventually Moss's calm approach begins to work, and Sully starts to listen to him and agrees to go to the shower.
4: Solomon, that's it, follow my voice, you're doing well. Solomon, if I get you up and if I open the hatch, will you put some handcuffs on so I can get you to a shower? Do you accept the trust? Do you mm-hmm. trust me? Or are we recording the whole thing? I'm going to record the whole thing. Okay. Oh, it's you want to grab somebody, and uh, we'll get a sheet. Uh, he needs care to cover himself up so we can get him down the stairs.
2: Eventually, Solomon is handcuffed, draped with a sheet, and taken down the stairs to the showers.
4: Okay, so give me your hand. That'll work. Good job. Thank you. You're doing well. I trust you. I'm not going to hurt you, okay? Once in the showers,
5: Solomon is still having a hard time. He starts lying on the floor.
4: Solomon, can you stand up? I'll take those handcuffs off for you, please, so you can get a shower.
3: Solomon.
4: Solomon, can you stand up for me, please? Here, thank you. Come, let me take those cuffs off so you can get a nice shower, and we'll get you some soap. Here, come here, come here. Answer. Yes, thank you. You're doing good. See, no one's gonna hurt you. Do you, know how you do, do you know how to start the water there, Solomon? Press that no, button on the wall, okay? And press the button? Press the button on the wall.
2: Solomon doesn't know how to start the shower. One officer tries to put a stick through the shower gate to press the button, but Moss stops him, and he goes in himself and turns it on.
3: Yes. There you go. There
4: you go. i That feel good? Supposed to be alone, There you go. Come here, you can't move. Yes, here. Hold your hand.
5: Solomon rubs his head with
3: shampoo. Allah! Yes. the
2: Suleiman is yelling Allahu Akbar, which means God is great in Arabic. It's heartbreaking to watch. And according to Moss' testimony, it was heartbreaking for him to watch too.
3: <inaudible> Allah! 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 Explode! It's Explode! It's Allah, Allah, Allah! 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 the white
5: Moss eventually got Solomon into a new cell, which was given up voluntarily by another inmate who wanted Sully to have it. He got him fresh clothes, fresh bedding. Inmates even offered their food to staff to give to Sully. And this would be the last time Moss would see Solomon, because he goes on vacation. Solomon would be dead five days after this video was taken. Sergeant
2: Moss told the inquest that he was later reprimanded for taking this video and quote, housing Suleiman in a shower. Senior officers at the jail told him not to share the video with anyone. In the inquest, he got emotional and cried telling the story. He felt really guilty for going on vacation, because if he had been there, maybe Sully would be alive today. On December 13th, A decision is made by senior jail staff to transfer Suleiman to another segregation unit. The goal was to move him to a unit where he could be more closely monitored. It's known to the facility as 8seg, but known to the inmates as the last stop. Operational manager John Thompson told CSOI, that's the Correctional Services Oversight Investigation, that he got the order to move him two days later there weren't enough beds in 8-seg to do it immediately.
4: Um, you were told by whom to move out? Nurse Kathy. Kathy
0: Borden? Yeah, she's the that. care uh, manager. Sounds care manager.
3: And I spoke with um, the OM, OM Thompson, and the correctional officers on pod 2. Uh, they were very concerned. Mm-hmm. I had not seen what they had seen throughout the, the few days yeah. I wasn't there. But they were very quite concerned because he was up and
2: down, up and down. On December 15th, Suleiman is escorted from 2 SEG to 8 SEG by officers, including operational manager John Thompson. The healthcare manager, Kathy Gord, is also escorting him. Those are the voices you just heard, also from the CSOI investigation. We
3: went down, brought a wheelchair, it would be much safer than him walking. Mine went to his cell, and the other inmates on the other side and on this side were saying, Oh, thank you, thank you for helping
0: on this. Anyway, we, we cuffed him, got him on the wheelchair, covered him up with the sheets, and uh, we brought him up to 8 uh, Sig and put him in the shower stuff.
5: Kathy Gord now leaves the area. In this shower in 8 Sig, Solomon's behavior starts to change.
0: He started throwing stuff at us and spitting at us and throwing shampoo and whatnot at us. He filled up the shampoo thing with the water and and was throwing it it
2: out. out. The guards in 8-SEG weren't able to calm Sully down like Sergeant Moss had. And so, Thompson tries to get assistance from the ISA team, the Crisis Intervention Team. They're the ones who look like a SWAT team, wearing all black armor and helmets, wielding batons and shields, and stomping down the halls.
0: I called Deputy Superintendent Jarrett Mar- uh, Marion. Yes. I explained what was going on. Anyway, my request first from the deputy was to get ISAT to move the guy because of the behavior. Mm-hmm. I was told that the negotiator wasn't available and that the regional office would not authorize ISAT to move that And I was told to wait until he sent somebody up, which turned out to be Dr. Kelly.
5: Dr. Crystal Kelly is the jail psychologist. Yeah, their only psychologist.
0: Uh, when I was explaining to her what the situation was, uh, she didn't want I sit involved. She called Nurse Kathy and uh, uh,
2: Kathy Gord then returns to the shower area.
3: And I said, what has changed? In his behavior, they wanted ice. What has changed in his behavior from him coming all the way from pie through the corridor, up the elevator, into the shower, to now we need ice? And mm-hmm. what has happened in that time?
0: They they talked to him, asked him if he would cooperate, if he, and that we would give him some crackers.
3: Well, so Crystal had a cereal bar. I remember peanut butter and some crackers. I said, if can you take off those wet boxers, are soaking wet, and um, put on the dry ones, the dry ones are right there. He got the boxers, he took the other ones off, he put them on, he looked at me, and he held them up, so he threw them, so he knew.
2: Sully's now following orders from the staff. Dr. Crystal Kelly and Kathy Gord continue to try to calm him down.
3: And so Crystal and I were saying, we have food here. Are you hungry? Yes, hungry food, hungry food. They said, Jody, the a Quran. You have a nice clean cell. We're going to give you some nice warm clothes. And we're going to put you in the cell. You're going to get some food.
5: And now
2: this brings us to the answer of our second question. Why was ISIT denied?
5: Dr. Kelly, the psychologist, testified during the inquest that when Suleyman had calmed down, she made a call to the deputy superintendent, Jarrett Merriam, who is the only one who actually has the power to deploy ISIT. She told him that the situation was under control and that they managed to defuse the situation, and she believed ISIT wasn't needed. This was a big point of contention during the inquest. Officers
2: believed that if ISIT was deployed to help escort Suleiman from the showers to his cell, he would be alive today. Jarrett Merriam, the deputy superintendent, testified during the inquest and was asked why he chose not to deploy ISIT. He said once healthcare staff told him that Sully was compliant, he didn't see the need for an ISIT team. He felt that the situation was well under control.
5: Right, so it is hard to tell whether or not ISIT would have been the right call. On one hand, they are trained for situations like this... ...and may have been able to get him into the cell and just kind of shut the door behind him without a use of force.
2: Yeah, I, I kind of agree. And, and I wonder why there was this reluctance to mobilize resources for an inmate who clearly appears to be in crisis. But on the other hand, the ICIT team, the SWAT team, might have just scared Sully and could have made things much worse. And from everything we've seen... Sully responds to gentler techniques rather than use of force.
5: Either way, John Thompson, the guard in charge, has been waiting to hear whether ICET would be helping him or whether he would have to move Solomon to his cell in eight seg himself.
0: I well, put his hands out, which he did. I cuffed him, kept hold of the cuffs, got staff to open the door, they said, what about Isit?" I said, it's not authorized. So, we're going to have to move him. He's, I think at that point he'd been in the shower for an hour or two hours. Mm-hmm. He was shivering. I said, No, I said it isn't authorized. So, I said, If you don't want to be involved, just stand back. I'll move him on my own. I opened up, the had the door opened up. I took him out. They came along with me. Okay, so I'm going to
4: stop you there. Okay? Yeah. Because we're going to get into some important information
2: here. In a we now move to the escort from the showers to his cell and arrive at our final question. What happened in that cell? You might remember we referenced a CCTV videotape from the hallway that was never released. Now, the inquest finally offered us that video. The tape has no audio, but for the first time, we were able to see the final moments of Suleiman's life.
5: Right, and this tape is important for many reasons. One of them is key in corroborating an eyewitness testimony. John Tebow was an inmate who was housed in the opposite cell. This is what he said when we interviewed him.
6: That's what proved me right, because if no one's seen the video, including myself, how the fuck do I know what happened in the hallway?
2: Having now watched the video, I think it's clear Tebow's testimony is consistent with what he says he witnessed in the hallway. Let's go through the tape.
5: In the video, We see Solomon walking down the hall with six correctional officers around him. At one point, his behavior changes, and Sully spits on the ground in the direction of John Thompson. And this prompts Thompson to turn around.
0: I didn't look at him. I just put my my right hand back Mm -hmm. in a distracting Mm motion. I'm pretty
4: sure I didn't hit him. Would you have not noticed the change in his demeanor if he was cooperative? Not until he spat at me. I guess what my question is, John. What caused him to spit at you at that point? There's, what I'm hearing is his demeanor changed at some point when he was walking from the shower. He had, been,
0: he had been spitting at us down down in the segregation cells. He had been right. spitting at us at the uh, through the shower doors. Right.
4: And you actually attempt to strike him? It, no, I did a distraction. I didn't hit him. I, I understand that, but the intention was there, though, John. No, it wasn't. Your intention was not to strike him. No, my intention was to go back. To well, go, back. go back. Your hand goes forward. You have the, the position before that. Your hand goes forward, John. John, you release. You have your hands on his cuffs. You yeah. changed positions, and your hand came across to swing him. It was
0: not my intention to hit him, and I do not believe I hit him. And I'm saying, what I
4: see on video, you did not hit him because he ducked. But yeah. well, my intention, well, what I'm telling you is that you changed hand positions on the handcuffs and you actually were going to hit him because he swung out. And okay. if he didn't duck, you would have hit him. Well,
0: that's your interpretation, It's not what my intent was. What
5: we see in this tape that Thompson does turn around and try to slap him. And this is where the struggle begins. The guards begin to drag Solomon down the hall to the cell, where John Thibault Uh,
2: Again, that's the eyewitness who was housed across from Suleiman.
5: Right. John Thibault can now see what's going on. He
6: He wasn't trying to fight him or not. He just wasn't trying to go in that cell.
2: Now, this audio isn't actually from our interview with Thibault, but rather an interview with the OPP that was played during the inquest. But he gives very similar details to what he told us about what he witnessed.
6: And then once he started resisting, the guard pull up pepper spray and sprayed it in his face. Okay. When he did that, they started forcing him. They got him into the cell. When they got him into the cell, the four guards that had a hold of him started beating the shit out of him. And they were, the female guard, right when that happened, the IC grabbed the mattress and he threw it out of the cell.
5: You can actually see this in the surveillance video.
6: They're hitting him, kicking him, whatever. He hits the ground. He was face down on the ground. He was able to stand up, and when he did that, the same guard that sprayed him the first time, because they only carry one canister of pepper spray, he grabbed a can of pepper spray off one of his partner's belt and hit him again with a second canister. Now, after he got hit with the second canister, from what I could see, most of it went down his throat. He's hearing all the inmates freaking out, like, leave him alone, stop beating him, like, stop beating him, leave him alone. And when he heard that, at that point, Solomon wasn't moving anymore. And the guard's yelling out, stop resisting, stop resisting. I don't know why he was yelling at because but he wasn't moving anymore. When I started kicking my door, he looked over at me, see me in the window. He ran over to my cell and he slammed my shutter. So at that point, I couldn't see anything.
2: Sure enough, on the surveillance tape, a guard does walk over to Tebow's cell and closes his shutter.
5: Now this is around when the code blue is called, meaning there's an immediate need for any available officers to assist. 20 officers come running down the hallway to the scene.
2: Now, there were two officers that responded to the Code Blue that played key roles Don Rosell and Dave Surowak. They both also testified in the inquest. When they arrive, someone asks for a spit hood. In another surveillance tape, we see several guards go looking for one, you know, rummaging through the control room to find it. But moments later, an officer is seen running back to the cell with a spithood in hand.
5: Sorowak testified, saying that he then took over for an officer by placing pressure on Solomon's right arm and kept asking other officers, what are we doing here? What are we doing with this guy?
2: Meanwhile, Roselle is standing outside the cell door. John Thompson leaves the scene, so Roselle becomes the default senior officer in charge, based on her rank. She makes the call to move his handcuffs from the front to the rear, in order to safely disengage the guards out of the cell. But according to Roselle's testimony, she had no knowledge of the spit hood or the fact that he had been pepper sprayed, or pepper
5: foamed, twice. Suruak is the one who helps move the cuffs to the rear, and is the second last to leave the cell.
2: Followed by Roselle, who shuts the door. Now, this is all crucial, because they have now left Suleiman in a fatal position, Ministry policies warn leaving an inmate in the prone position with hands behind the back could lead to positional asphyxia and, in other words, sudden
5: death. Outside the cell, they all catch their breaths.
2: But 10 to 15 seconds later, Roselle says she noticed Suleiman's back wasn't rising. She pulls out her radio and announces a medical emergency and opens the door.
5: Suruak goes in and removes the handcuffs. And
2: this is the moment where Roselle testifies that she finally sees the spithood. Her reaction is, quote, Oh my god, I don't know what to say. What is happening here?
5: Nurses then arrive, attempt CPR, and paramedics pronounce his death at 3.47pm.
2: It's interesting. Roselle testified saying she never saw the spithood because of the crowded cell, Otherwise, she would have never cuffed him behind his back. She also said she didn't know he had been pepper-foamed either. Otherwise, she would have decontaminated him immediately.
5: Yeah, and Surowak claims he had no knowledge of the policy breaches. He says he lacked training in de-escalation, mental health, pepper-foam, or the risk of positional asphyxia. A record of his training history confirmed this, but he had undergone a 20-minute spithood orientation.
2: I mean, even if the two of them weren't aware, there were at least 20 guards at the scene at one point, and not one of them raised concerns about policies not being followed.
5: There's the policy that says that an inmate must be decontaminated immediately after they've been pepper-foamed.
2: Yeah, and then there's the spit hood, which has a big warning label on the packaging that says improper use can cause injury or sudden death. In the end, John Thompson, Don Rosell, and Dave Suriwak were all fired as a result of their actions on that day. But no criminal charges were ever
5: laid. Dave Suriwak was eventually reinstated and is now back at work.
2: And according to their testimonies, it's very clear that this event still haunts them to this
1: day. There's no longer any doubt left that Solomon Fikiri was killed by correctional officers at the Central East Correctional Center in Lindsay, Ontario. He will not come back, my late brother, but today is an opportunity where Suleiman might have just some semblance of peace.
2: When I sat with Yusuf Fakiri after the verdict was read, he was full of emotion.
1: You know, I came to this country as a refugee, and um, I always remember Sully and I were holding at each other's hands as kids, and I remember. He would always look at me, he's like, Yusuf, I know you'll take care of me. And when I look at when I look at today's today's verdict, at this homicide verdict, I say to myself, we have a word in Arabic we say Hamdulillah, which means we thank God. Yeah. And I hope Solomon's death cannot be in vain. And that Solomon had a family. And today was the first time in seven years that he was hurt and he was seen. Yeah. He was hurt and he was seen. Yeah. And that's that's the legacy of the story.
2: And that brings us to where we started. We call this podcast Unascertained because, for years, that was the word that defined this case. Unknown, undetermined, too many factors. But now we know, according to the jury of the coroner's inquest, that it was a homicide. And the cause of death is no longer unascertained. Decisions were made, policies were broken, and a man died. And to make sure this never happens again, the jury put forward 57 recommendations. Some of these include making mental health training for correctional staff mandatory, making sure mentally ill inmates are held and assessed in hospitals, not correctional facilities, and improving policies around use of force, such as when and how pepper foam, spit hoods, and restraints are used.
5: They even included a recommendation to explore the possibility of using video recordings to enhance accountability in jails, thanks to Sergeant Moss's interventions.
2: We actually reached out to the jails' union to comment on all of this, especially given the fact that they proposed a verdict of accident instead of homicide. They said they would be reviewing the verdicts and recommendations.
5: They also acknowledged the need for an increase in community mental health support, and quotes, We will continue to lobby the government for improvements to a broken system.
2: Yeah, I don't know. In my opinion, this tragic pattern will continue to repeat itself if the Ontario government doesn't take these recommendations seriously. And maybe I've become too cynical throughout all of this, but I am worried these recommendations won't be put into action. I mean, we've seen deaths in jails time and time again, and there were always recommendations put forward then too. Now, there are some people in political power who are cognizant of this. Here's Kristen Wong Tam, a member of provincial parliament from the NDP.
4: The coroner's inquest has already revealed more disturbing information about Mr. Fakiri's death, including a graphic 24-minute video of his last moments. What will this government do to take steps to address the deadly mix of systemic discrimination and mental health stigma in the justice and correctional systems?
2: I, I just want to end by reading a closing statement from one of the Inquest lawyers, Julian Roy, and I think it sums up our feelings on this story. Mr. Fakiri didn't just die on December 15, 2016. He was killed. While it's not necessary for your verdict, it's perhaps natural to ask ourselves if Mr. Fikiri was killed, as I've submitted to you, then who killed Mr. Fakiri? It's often said that prison holds a mirror to society. And that mirror reflects back who we really are, not who we say we are. To answer that question, we need to look in that mirror, as hard as it is to do so. And I'm asking you, please do not look away. It's your burden to do that for the community, to look hard into that mirror. And when we look in that mirror together, the truth is ultimately, we killed Suleiman Fakiri. As a society, we have known for decades that we have been housing people in acute mental health crises in our prisons. They're there now as we speak. We know that this is neither safe, nor human, nor decent. And there's no excuse for it. In 2023, and in 2016, no excuse. We have utterly failed to address what we know is happening, and our collective indifference cost Mr. Fakiri his life. Sully had a strength and resilience that very few of us could summon, and in circumstances that no person should ever have to endure. His spirit was never broken. Unascertained is written and produced by me, Yusuf Zine, and Kevin Young. Kevin Young is also our audio engineer. Our story editor is Michelle Shepard. Our legal counsel is Willa Marcus. Tiffany Lamb is our producer for TVO Today podcasts. Katie O'Connor is managing editor of podcasts and digital video. Production support from Jonathan Hallowell, Carla Lucetta, Vito Tagarelli, Jeff Warren, and Robin Hall. Lori Few is executive producer of digital. John Ferry is Vice President of Programming and Content. Theme song and music by Blue Dot Sessions and Audio Network. Unascertained is produced by Innerspeak and TVO Today.